0: Welcome back. Okay, set three. We have up next Martin Miller, who was born in Scotland and now lives in London. He's the author of Lonely Werewolf Girl, The Good Fairies of New York, and many other novels. And he won the World Fantasy Award in 2000 for Thraxus, written under the pseudonym of Martin Scott. He'll be reading from his new book tonight, The Goddess of Buttercups and Daisies. Please welcome to the stage Martin Miller.
1: book, uh, The Goddess of Buttercups and Daisies. I don't have any, this is an advanced copy from my publisher, so I don't have any more. I would have given some to the bookshop, but I don't, (laughs) yeah, sorry. (laughs) As it's uh, a new book, I thought I'd arrive well prepared with, um, you know, give you a good Concise description of it and such like, but that didn't happen. (laughs) (laughs) um, But I have picked out a couple of bits to read. Now, it's set in ancient Athens. I've tried to set a book in Athens for quite a long time, actually. It never worked. This is centred around two characters. Luxus, Luxus the poet, who is a kind of um, pre incarnation of a character I wrote about in another book, Lux, and Aristophanes. So at this point, it's 421 BC or uh, BCE, and Athens has been at war with Sparta for the most part of the last 10 years. Everything, the cultural life is going on in Athens, but they're all finding it difficult. Aristophanes is rehearsing his new play. It didn't take long for things to go wrong. Aristophanes was telling his lead actor, Philippus, that he'd rewritten the opening speech. When his assistant, Hermogenes, bustled up, Looking worried. Aristophanes, there's a problem with their penises. What? <laughs> They're too floppy. <laughs> Aristophanes took a step backwards. So did Philippus. Oh, speak for yourself, said Aristophanes. No, I mean their on stage fallacies. Look. He pointed to the small rehearsal stage where the chorus was assembling. Some already wearing their masks, some still carrying them. Each was wearing a simple rehearsal robe, but they all had on the standard comedy phallus, an obligatory accessory for the Athenian comic chorus. Some hung down about 12 inches, others 18. So what's wrong? The big ones won't erect properly. Aristophanes hurried over to the chorus. He already had problems with just about every other aspect of the production. The last thing they needed was a phallus malfunction. Let me see. The actors in the chorus pulled the internal drawstrings that made their penises go erect. It was a classic move in comedy. All playwrights used it. A good Athenian comedy needed huge penises going up and down at regular intervals. <laughs> Aristophanes frowned. The 12-inch phalluses were standing up fairly well, but the 18-inch models were drooping hopelessly. It made for a sorry sight. There are times when a droopy phallus was the right thing for your comedy, but they had to be able to stand up when required. Everyone knew that. What's the matter? Who made these? Normal prop workshop, but they say they can't get the materials, you know, the war. Aristophanes quenched his fist. Damn these Spartans. Damn the politicians who won't make peace. Now they're ruining my chorus's phalluses. Well, said Philippus, the smaller ones are not too bad, they're standing up all right. Aristophanes waved us away. The smaller penis was only 12 inches long. I can't sign my chorus out with only 12 inches dangling in front of them. The audience would jeer us off the stage. Did you see the size of eupolices last year? When his chorus turned round, he almost decapitated the front row. <laughs> Look, Hermogenes, these just won't do. Tell Leon in the prop department we need them bigger and better and harder. <laughs> by now he was shaking with anger. If I don't win first prize for comedy this year, there's going to be trouble. Tell our so-called prop designer. Aristophanes was interrupted by a his tunic. As he turned round, his face fell. Luxus, who let you in here? Hello Aristophanes, would you like to hear my new poem? (laughs) Aristophanes sighed. Luxus was 19, the son of an oarsman. He wanted to be a poet. Zeus only knew why. I don't have time right now, Luxus, but it's my new poem about the Battle of Salamis. What would you know about Salamis? My grandfather fought there. Did you consider following him into the Navy? Luxus looked a little downcast. He was a pretty young boy, but he wasn't athletic. He said I was too weak to pull an oar. Won't you listen to my poem? I'm too busy. Aristophanes glared at Luxus. It wasn't the first time the putative young poet had interrupted his work. Aristophanes would have thrown him out of the theatre if they hadn't both been members of the Pandionis tribe. That did bring certain obligations. You were meant to be civil to fellow members, and help them out if possible. However, while Aristophanes did occasionally farm out some lyric writing, neither he or anyone else was ever going to trust Luxos to write poetry for them, with his effeminately long tousled hair, his obvious poverty, and his lack of training. Luxos sensed his thoughts. No one will give me a chance, just because I'm the son of an oarsman, Face it, Luxus, few great Athenian writers have come from the families of Roars. You weren't even educated. I educated myself. How about give me the poetry spot before your play starts? Luxus, before my actors walk on stage, the crowd will be entertained by one of Athens' great poets. Does that include you? Yes, only in your own mind. I could do it if I got the chance. Come back in a few years when you've made your reputation, and I'll consider it. It's not fair, said Luxus. Aristophanes turned away. We've been at war for 10 years, nothing's fair anymore. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Martin. Okay, next up, Belle Denege is living proof that you can make yourself look clever if you write down interesting stuff that other people who are far more interesting than you are say. She's also a chalet girl, Upper Mountain, bringing you illicit gossip and tales of catastrophe, sex, and squalor from the Alpine underbelly. Please welcome to the stage Belle Denege.
2: Hello, everybody. Um, thank you for sticking around to this late hour to hear me. Um, Belle Denez came about, started out as a blog, which I used to document my experiences working for probably the worst chalet company in the Alps. Um, I thought so anyway. Um, and I really kind of started writing it to make my friends back home laugh. Um, I thought what was happening to me on a daily basis was hilarious. Um, like the Russian people that showed up in my chalet with... a a poodle that would only drink Evian and um, just the sheer number of toilets I had to clean, really. Um, So then I turned it into a book, and that's this, Tales of Catastrophe, Sex, and Squalor, from the Alpine Underbelly, and I hope you enjoy this excerpt. Another girl works with me in the chalet. Did I mention that? Perhaps not. Um, In truth, I try not to think about her too much because she's ghastly. For some reason, I appear to have been thrust into playing the role of harassed, short-tempered governess to this giant, crisp-eating, southern comfort-wielding child. Not only this, but I've also been unlucky enough to end up sharing a room with her and her cronies, China, India, and Asia. (laughs) They are hags, moist, just out of school, and all podgy with sly little faces, big, back-combed, air hair, and a lot of gunk around the eyes which is applied layer on layer every morning in a slapdash, trowel-like fashion with smeary bits and patches. I'm stuck with these moon-faced horrors since the only other members of staff in our ski resort who work for the same company and can string a sentence together are Calamity, our driver, and a couple called Sid and Marjorie. Sid and Marge are at the other end of the spectrum, pensioner ski bums balding and bespectacled, respectively. Sid is one of those men who wear their bobble hats uh, perpendicular to the head, like a gnome. He carries his mobile phone in a holster. On this theme, let me extrapolate and further define the various types of chalet bitch that one encounters in your average ski resort. The private chalet bitch. This is as close to the traditional role as it gets. Take the foxy chef, for example. She swans about in an enormous car with designer handbags and watches bought with her gratuitous tips. Private chalet bitches have their phones paid for, buy all their ski gear on account, and live gratis in the boss's property all winter, eating steak bought with the chalet credit card and drinking the cellar dry. Then there's irksome blonde 19-year-old chalet bitches. These are not necessarily female, overprivileged, slothful, ditzy, sulky little bastards, fresh out of school on a winter sports jolly gap year, often manipulative, arrogant, professionally ignorant, impervious to reason, socially oblivious, unreceptive to advice, encouragement or cajoling and totally unaware of how ridiculous they look, sound and are to everyone else not in their social category. Goal in life? to consume more alcohol than Shirley Bassey on death row and shag as many other irks and blonde 19-year-olds as physically possible. They usually end the season with two extra arse cheeks and a cornucopia of venereal diseases, mating call, Lash Kagar, yacht Daddy, Blair. Sadly, for yours truly, it is the latter of these that I have had the unfortunate fate of being designated to cohabit and work with. I use the word work in its loosest possible sense, because, in essence, the blonde 19-year-old is little more useful and conversationally adept than a brain-damaged pig. Except, to be fair, if you took a retarded swine and taught it to stand upright and bake yogurt cakes, you would probably end up with a more cooperative and effective employee. Let me just take this moment to tell you a little bit about the blonde 19-year-old with whom I work a sullen, vacant girl with no more than three-quarters of an inch of brain and disproportionately large knockers, which are always on show either by way of a see-through or low-cut top. She dresses like a Brixton whore, walks like a rugby player, and skis like my Auntie Jean. Her enormous ass receives no favours for being perpetually enfolded into the most ludicrously tight jeans I've ever seen, and her hair is always backcombed, piled on top of her head in a cack-handed chignon of her Mostly the Exome Blonde nineteen year old just slopes about sulking with her G string showing above her jeans and taking a fag break every six seconds. Allegedly, she comes from somewhere remote in Scotland, but she speaks with the cut glass accent of a lady and the adopted intonation of a lout. She pronounces chalet wrong, with the emphasis on the second syllable chalet. By the way, I was thinking, she said to me once in a rare moment of lucidity, do you really think it's on, all this cleaning we have to do? Couldn't we, like, look into getting a cleaner or, like, something? I laughed. I could see an insane sort of logic to this idea. We could split it. It would, like, only be, like, a hundred a week or so, she said, hopefully. We earn 75 euros a week. You do the math. I can't be bothered with it all Raleigh. My dad's matching my income, so it's not like I actually need a job. Just doing it because my mum's a fucking bitch and said I had to. During our first week in the chalet, after countless hours spent waxing the dining room floor, shoveling snow, scrubbing and re-scrubbing the oven, buffing toilets, hoovering acres of carpet and sofa, replacing dozens of bulbs, scrubbing mould from the hot tub and degreasing all the pots and pans, I was immensely pissed off, but irksome blonde 19-year-old was scandalized to the point of threatening to call her parents. Not long after that, it began to sink in. My fellow shallow bitch, the person with whom I'd envisaged sharing a burden with all season and having lots of skiing fun, was a complete buffoon. The stuff that comes out of her mouth scores pretty high on my own personal list of most preposterously stupid questions and statements I've ever heard. Some particularly choice examples include, uh, are we in France or Switzerland? This after a month of living in the resort. Why don't the lifts go up on both sides? It'd make the queue smaller. And are potatoes dairy or vegetable? <laughs> yes, as I have said, this is the sort of fuck bucket that tour operators employ to cook your food. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Beltanage. Next up we have Montague Cobb. Experienced chiromancer and telepathist is a man from another century born in Caracas in a country that no longer exists. He received the first runner-up mention at Premio Casa de las Americas 2014 for his debut novel, The Night of the Rambler. His first collection of flash flash fiction, tales of bedsheets and departure lounges, is fresh out and features fifty bilingual short stories. He's kept a literary column in Sint Martens, the Daily Herald since 2008, writes about vintage football for the Spanish online magazine Fronterad.com and updates his blog, Memo from La La Land, regularly, sort of. He's also the translator of 17 photography books by Spanish publisher, publisher La Fabrica. Please welcome to the stage Montague Cobb.
3: Y su aroma penetra mis sentidos Dos lilias paraneras se juntan en la distancia Se entrecruzan caminos opuestos Se encuentran miradas Y tras un intercambio fugaz Ella pasa de largo La siguiente ocasión le debe menos a la fortuna Sus predecibles pasos la han vuelto a poner al alcance de mi mano Pero percibo un toque invasivo en la situación Y desvanece el encanto La veo desaparecer entre la bruma, aquella hermosa extraña a la que he permitido escapar, ilesa. Good evening. I'm not going to read everything in Spanish. I was uh, expecting there to be like only two people at this time, so thank you for staying. Um, this is my latest um, book, my new collection of short stories not only short stories, really, really short stories, isn't like micro stories. See, as a writer, people always tell you to, uh, to, to, to avoid being too general, to zoom in, to kind of find your niche and uh, carve your name uh, on it, to uh, sort of figure out what's, what's, what's the specificity of it, what you, what, what you really are good at, and just carry on doing that. So after writing a novel, um, I decided I would do that, and I would zoom in. And if you write a novel and you zoom in, you get short stories. And I kept zooming in, and I got really, really, really short stories—like one-line short stories. But then I thought that's that's too big a pond for me, really. I, I I need something smaller. So I decided I'd become like this authority in bilingual Spanish and English—really, really short stories—and this is it. If anybody else, if anybody knows um, anyone else that's been doing that in the last 10 years or something, just let me know afterwards. I'll be in the bar, just give me their number, their address, I'll figure it out. (laughs) Anyway, I um, I will give you the translation of that. It's called The Stranger. A glance, a light touch, and her lingering scent penetrates my senses. Parallel lines meet in the distance, opposite paths cross each other. Eyes meet eyes, gazes lock, and in an instant, she walks past. The next sighting is less governed by chance. Her predictable steps place her within my reach again, but I recognize an element of intrusiveness in the situation, and the fun is spoiled. I see her disappear in the haze, that beautiful stranger I allowed to walk away unharmed. So, most of the time, whenever you do just about anything in life, really, you'll find someone else has done it before. Mostly they've done it better than you can do it as well. Turns out, Ernie Hemingway was a real fan of real, real short fiction, as in like six words He wrote a story, six words. It's phenomenal. Well, I wrote a story. at six words. Except it has a title as well. It's got a two-word title. That's me, always two words behind Hemingway. Two lovers. Despite each other, their lips parted. So, As you go through this book, if you go through this book, (laughs) I'm getting the sense you might not go through this book, but (laughs) I'm an optimist. Um, One of the strands pulling the book together is that as you go through it, each story sort of feeds off the other stories, and the narrative that you get from the collection is very different to the narrative that you get from each of the separate stories. But there's a cluster of four or five stories are out at the end, um, that are all part of the same theme, as it were. I'll read a couple of those. Farewell. The touch of lip against lip lasted one more second, thanks to the thread of shared fluids that sprung between them. His turning away, without further ado, broke the ton- contact, also the visual one, and sealed departing without a single word. Followed by eyes drenched in sadness, he traces the the steps that have taken him through this labyrinth of guards and officers. Disregarding distances, chance allows him one final glance at the paint expression of his beloved just before turning the corner and leaving the building. Joined by the same affliction, Eyes, nose, and mouth blend in a shapeless smudge that forces him to wonder whether this really is the one I love. And the final very, very little story in the collection is called Three is a Crowd. It's, again, part of the same cluster of, I think, probably about five stories that come together right at the end and one plays with the other. The first one of those was um, Actually it's not the first, that's the second one. Another one is the one with the six the six words that I mentioned before. And this is the final one, the one that closes the whole connection uh, collection, yeah. Three is a crowd. Without looking back, he boarded his flight, left her behind. She never discovered in his long for kiss how close she had been to losing him. And finally, I'm going to read a slightly longer story, probably about 20 lines instead of 20 words. Um, This was written just a little bit further up the road, so I thought it would be a a nice way of ending it. It's called In a Station of a Metro, and again, titles will play a big role in the collection. sort of set the turn for the story or bring up some sort of geeky literary games with other stories and other collections and much more famous and capable people. Um, And this is called In the Station of the Metro because of a poem by Ezra Pound with the same title. The image on the screen flicked one more time, reverted back to the footage filmed by camera number four halfway down the double-platform. The dark figure of the desolate man reappeared. He had first noticed him twelve minutes earlier as the padded padded trench coat made its way towards the end of the station. Twelve minutes later, seven trains had gone past in both directions, and the mysterious man still sat on the bench between the two platforms, hands on knees, head tilted towards the ground, dreads falling over his face with no apparent inclination toward any of them. The officer approached cautiously, silently. The man didn't notice him until his shoes invaded the perimeter of his vision. Is everything all right? The slow rise of his head took him through the full extent of the guard's uniform. I waiting for me train. Politely but questioningly, the policeman inquired, where are you going? Gloom invaded his previously blank expre- expression. I ain't decided yet. Thank you very much for staying. Thanks, Al, and the team for inviting me. It's a great pleasure to be here again. Sales <laughs> of bedsheets and departure lounges. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much, Montague. So, thank you everyone so far for being at the Bricks and Book Jam. Our final reader of the night, Professor Robert, or as he, as he likes to be known, Bob Eagleston, is going to give you some context for the very many beautiful, different literary experiences we've had this evening. Some, maybe some critical tools to help you engage with what we've heard. And understand why we put on such a random, eclectic, and amazing bunch of writers to the Vix- and Book Jam. May you welcome Bob Eagleston.
4: Hi. So it's, it's a great, it's, it's a great privilege to come on and talk after all these amazing writers, and I can't see anything, and uh, be with you, and talk to you, and come at the end because unlike all these writers. I I'm not really a writer. I do write stuff. What I am is a literary critic. (laughs) Okay? Yeah. And the thing is that everybody here, everybody here tonight is also a literary critic. Because what does a literary critic do? What a literary critic does is say what they think about books. So everyone here is a critic. But here are some other sorts of critics. Here's an agent uh, tweet from a few weeks ago. It's said, a proud day for our agency as authors secure numbers one, two, three spot in this week's bestseller paperback chart. Well, that's a form of criticism. He's thinking about books. He's thinking about how proud he is that his, uh, ag- his business products have been successful. Well, that's fair enough. Newspaper journalists, they're critics too. They often write about authors. They talk about their, their heartbreak, their feuds, their lives. And when their b- new books come out, they interview the authors and talk about the authors. And that's great. But I always think that's really weird because when you read a book, you're interested in the in the book more than in the author, apart from it being a sort of celebrity. So again, that's sort of a criticism, but just like the agent is interested in it as a product, the journalist writing about the authors, not interested in the book as the book, and it's the book that we read that we respond to. Literary reviewers, too, when they write about books, it always freaks me out. They, they, have, uh, they read books, they come to really quick opinions about them takes me a long time to work out what I think about a book, because often literary reviewers have got a preset idea of what they want to say, okay, and just shoot into it without attending to, without paying attention to the book. So what's the what's the best way of doing criticism? Perhaps there perhaps there isn't one. David Eggers he says um, he says a very nasty thing about us, because we're literary critics. He says critics are collectors; they, they chase something. Out of their search for beauty, then, once they get close, they catch that beautiful something, they kill it, they stick a pin through its abdomen, dissect it and label it. The whole process, I find, he says, is not a happy or healthy one. Someone with his or her own own shit figured out, instead of killing that which they love, will simply let the thing, the butterfly, fly and simply point to it. Hey, everyone, look at that beautiful thing. Well, hmm... I guess I think that criticism begins in saying, "Hey, look at that beautiful thing," but I think there's much more to it than that. I think if we just say, "Look at that beautiful thing," that's where we begin. We're not doing the books that we've come, in, the literature we've come here to listen to, not doing it justice. So I think that novels or writing, poetry, thinks, doesn't think with philosophical logic, A to B to C to D doesn't think like a historian adding up cases and references and archives, doesn't think like a political manifesto. Indeed, even the word thinking might be a mistake to describe what it is that literature does, but it does do something. And part of our job, part of our way, all of us here at the Jam, thinking about what it does, trying to understand what books do, following that sinuous form of thinking. So that's the first thing we have to do. We have to tend to to not to the author, but to what the book actually says. And you can see the impact of that when you have critical conversations. Because when you have critical conversations, when somebody says something about a book, okay, the response is, is to say, Yeah, yeah, I see that. Yeah, but but, yes, but. Okay? So you can tell that thinking comes in saying, yeah, but okay, thinking about it. But criticism also means trying to think with the books, but also finding patterns. Because finding patterns in literature is how our own lives become intelligible to ourselves. A criticism means something else, too. All forms of art, novels or poems, need not just creators like the writers we've seen here this evening, but they also need preservers people who preserve them, people who write novels in the tradition of so-and-so, or reproduce types of fiction, they're sort of preservers, but so are critics. Critics helped, like all of us here, help to make works known and intelligible and understood. And that's particularly important. I don't think the novel is dying or contemporary fiction is dying or literature is dying. Of course it isn't. Look how many of us there are here this evening. But it is true. There are lots of other things people do: movies and games, okay, the web, music, and it, in in this sort of world, okay, uh, literature is constantly renegotiating and thinking about its role. So literature is also um, needs needs preserving, not defending, not being kept in acid, uh, in formaldehyde, but being kept, but being kept, kept alive, okay, kept alive, okay, because. Because when people say the word tradition, it makes me uh, just want to go to sleep. Okay, But the sense that there's, there's a, a tradition of stuff, there's a way of thinking, it's not dead, it's alive. Because literature is the place where the past comes into the present to think about the future. And it's really important, that. And there's one more thing about it that's really important. Okay, It seems to me that, and I think that um, in Martin Miller's book about Aristophanes and Lux, the poet, Okay, I was wondering if something that was going to happen. There's something about literature and democracy. These two things grew up together. They're like they're like siblings in some complicated way. So talking about books, arguing about books, yes, but yes, but is somehow tied in with living in a dem- democratic sort of society, and that seems really important. So one of the things I'm going to finish with by saying. One of the things about talking about books or thinking about books is that it never really finishes. So although I'm the last uh, speaker, okay, the conversations about books don't finish because at the end of every conversation, every time someone says something, you have to say, "Yes, but thank you."
0: Thank you, Robert. Okay, we're coming to the end of our evening. Most of all, I'd like to thank you for sitting and listening, and hopefully buying and reading books. Um, one of the things you mentioned there about preserving—if um, you care about your libraries, yeah, if you care about your library, there is a meeting Wednesday, 11th of March, Brixton Library, 7 p.m. Yeah, libraries are really important. It's, it's a shame that they're being threatened. Yeah. Okay. And also Stuart and Zelda for organizing the night. <laughs> Rally Rye, aka Jeff, for organizing the sound system. And Andy for providing the music in between. I hope you've had a great night, yeah? And I hope we have many more of these.